I love how we are a worshiping church. Is anyone else grateful for that? I love it. I love that I can stop singing and I can just hear all of you sing. It refreshes my soul. I love it. I commend you. Hey, well, we are going to be in Galatians chapter 4 tonight. Galatians chapter 4, you can turn there. Uh, by show of hands, how many of you have never been here on a Wednesday night before? Raise up your hand. Is there anyone? Well, welcome. Don't be too shy. Wednesdays right now, we call them Focus Wednesdays. And so we set, or we start off with a time of fellowship in the courtyard. Then around 6.50, we come in here for worship and Bible study, and then we break off into what we are calling our focus groups, and so that's why our sanctuary is kind of rearranged. We have these circles around, and the focus groups, we take time to discuss God's words word together to pray with one another. And if you're here for the first time, you are free to leave right after service, or we encourage you to just hop in into any of the focus groups that you see around you to just get connected with one another. But tonight we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to dive straight into it because we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. You see, the heartbeat of the book of Galatians is to remind the churches in the region of Galatia and us today that we have been set free to live freely in relationship with Christ. We've been set free to live freely. And last week we opened up to chapter 4 and Pastor Aaron shared an incredible and powerful reminder of who we are in Christ. That we have been adopted in. That we have been chosen by the God who created the heavens and the earth. I mean how amazing to consider our adoption. And the key point of last week was reminding us that as been adopted, we've been adopted into full stature, meaning that we have complete access to our inheritance in Christ. We have complete access. So with that in mind, we're going to jump in here to verse 8. We're going to read a few verses together and pray and dive into it. And again, if this is your first time, uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the assisting pastors here. And I'd encourage you, come back in the next couple of weeks as Pastor Rob is going to be sharing with us. He's our lead pastor and he is, he's the man, the myth and legend. So I'm just filling in for him uh, tonight. So uh, let's read from verses 8 through to verse 11 together. This is God's word and it says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, catch this, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn against the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Let's pray together one more time. Lord Jesus, as we approach and open your word, God, we pray and ask that you would take just another Wednesday night. And Lord, that you would grace us with your presence, that your word would come alive to us and speak directly to our hearts. Father, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. And Lord, I pray just over our time that you would speak to us, that you would use the discussion groups, Lord. And Father, may we just marvel at your incredible grace tonight. We praise you. We welcome you here. And in Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, the title of our short message tonight is Paul's Worst Nightmare. Paul's Worst Nightmare. How many of you had nightmares when you were children? 
when we were young, nightmares. You remember those nightmares waking up all scared in the middle of the night and going into a different room trying to turn on the light or seek comfort. I've got a three-year-old right now and she is at that time now where she is starting to have some nightmares. And so she wakes up in the middle of the night and she's crying and she comes into our room scared. And it's really sad and comfort her. She ends up staying in our bed for the rest of the night most of the times um, and just cuddle up on her and love on her. Well, Nightmares, we kind of grow out of those, right, into adulthood. We don't really have nightmares. Many of us don't anymore. But we have these experiences that we call living nightmares. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, living nightmares. And so that's when your horrible fears come to real life. You know, I shared with you guys a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning of a living nightmare of my wife's came true when we discovered that there were three rats living in her car. This was truly a living nightmare for my wife. For me, it would be spiders. A living nightmare would be if I got in my car and there was thousands of spiders in there, uh, it would be a living nightmare. I would hate it. But in all honesty, a living nightmare for many of us is if something bad happened to one of our kids or family members, right? That's what we would consider a living nightmare. Well, here in Galatians chapter 4, we have Paul's worst nightmare. Did you know the apostle Paul gets scared? There in verse 11, we'll read it again. He says, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul here is experiencing a living nightmare. One of the churches in which he pastored, in which he brought the gospel of God's grace to and saw their salvation, and they began to walk with Jesus, the churches of Galatia. Now they are turning from grace and going back to the law. Paul is afraid for them. This is Paul's living nightmare that they would be turning from God's grace to going back to living and relating to God on the basis of the law. Paul is afraid for them. This is Paul's living nightmare that they are going away from freedom and back into bondage, that they are turning away from liberty and putting on the shackles of the law. Tonight we're going to outline our time together in four words. Number one, return. Number two, remember. Number three, run. And number four, realize. Return, remember, run, realize. First we'll see Paul is here. He's giving a passionate plea to the churches of Galatia. In fact, some Bible commentators say this is Paul's most passionate plea out of all the epistles. He's very passionate. If you remember, we told you at the beginning of the series in the book of Galatians that this is all caps. Caps locks are on here as he is writing this letter. Literally, all of the wording is in caps lock. It is a very passionate letter that Paul is giving to the churches in Galatia. And they say, many commentators, that this is Paul's most passionate plea. First, we're going to see that in this plea, he is calling them to return to grace. To return to grace. It's important to note that the churches of Galatia, where they began. You see, they began, the, the, the churches or the region of Galatia was actually a Gentile region. So these people or this church, they grew up, their, their history was pagan or idolatrous worship. They were immoral people. 
they were experiencing licentious living. They were, these were people that were not religious at all in the sense of what we would consider religious. They were irreligious. They were people that were worshiping to pagan gods and serving Id- idols and living in idolatry. These are who the Galatians were. But we know that the Galatians... They responded to the gospel of grace. And so Paul here, he's calling them to return to grace. In fact, he says there in verse 8, he's reminding them a bit of where they came from. He says, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. He's referring there to their pagan and their idol worship that was a part of their history. This is where they had come from. They were idol worshipers. He's reminding them of their idolatry. But then we see that they did not stay in that state. They who did not know God, those who serve those which by nature are not gods, they have a transition there from verse 8 to verse 9. They had enjoy received the gospel of grace. They had enjoy received the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. They had received Paul and his message and they came to know God. There in verse nine, we read, now after you have known God and more importantly, they were known by God. Those who had once served idols and worship these false gods, they'd readily received the gospel of grace. Now, remember, idol worship was all based upon the idea that you need to worship different false gods in order to appease them, to make them happy. Well, the good news of the gospel of God's grace, that through his life, burial, and resurrection, is that because of who Jesus is, now we get to come to him, and he is already pleased, we're perfected in Christ. And so they readily received this gospel. They came to know God, and rather, they were known by God. They became Christians. And so they have this great conversion, Paul's getting very pastoral here from chapters one through three. This is the apostle Paul getting very authoritative. Now he's transitioning. He's getting pastoral and he's getting personal. He's reminding them of where they came from, that they had turned from idol worship to where they were in bondage to those idols. They were in bondage and in slavery, how they'd readily received the gospel of grace. But notice now that they are turning again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage, is his question to them. So they'd received the gospel. They went from idol worship and licentious living to then receiving the gospel of God's grace. But now they're turning from God's grace and they're going into legalistic living. So they're trading licentious living for grace and now they're headed into legalism. What happened? Well, they had responded to the gospel and following Paul on his missionary journey was a group of people we've talked about known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jewish followers that claimed that God's grace was enough to get you started, but not enough to see you through. That God's grace was not enough to sustain you. So now that you've received Christ, now you need to go back into Jewish law and follow its customs and rituals and rites. This is the message that they had brought to the Galatians. And the Galatians were receiving this message. They were receiving the message from the Judaizers and they were turning from grace to the law. 
Paul is now writing this letter, as we've seen, to remind them of God's grace. And he's pleading for them to return to God's grace. And refers to these Judaizers, to the message that they're bringing, as weak and beggarly elements. Weak and beggarly elements. Now, this term is interesting because it refers to the perspective of this world. Aaron referenced it last week, but the weak and beggarly elements is the idea that many hold and believe, in fact, all other religions really hold at the root of it, is that you get what you deserve. What you put in is what you get out. Tim Keller refers to it like this. He says that these elements are the most basic principle of all the world, and it is that we need to save ourselves. We need to save ourselves. You need to fend for yourself. You need to work your way up to God. You need to prove yourself. You need to save yourself. They were going back to weak and beggarly elements. The Galatians were turning from grace and going back to the law. See, it's so interesting because Paul is reminding them as he's asking them to return to grace that they did not know God, that they began in licentious idolatry worship, but then they knew God and God knew them. You see, the beautiful thing about the gospel that makes the gospel different than anything else is that we serve a God who knows us who knows us deeply and intimately. I'm reminded of Psalm 139, when the psalmist says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. See, the difference between any other perspective and worldview and religion is that because of the finished work of Jesus, our God knows us. And of all of our filth and of all of our sin and all of our failure, God knows us. This is grace, but they are turning from grace and they're going back, really not back, but the first time to the law. They're going from licentious living to legalistic living to now thinking that they had to appease gods in idol worship, to now they're going to a different extreme to saying, now I need to prove myself to you, God, for you to see how good I am. See, they had readily received the message from the Judaizers in Paul. This is his worst nightmare. That they would be going to the law. That they would be putting themselves under law. That they would be rejecting God's grace. We see that they were observing different holidays, months and seasons. And they were putting back on again the yoke of bondage. So in other words, the Galatians are going from irreligion to grace now to religion. From licentious living to grace to legalistic living. They had fallen from grace. Friends, we can't miss this. What Paul is saying here is really, really big because what he's saying by comparing their former life to their life now is that just as licentious and idol worship is bondage, so too is legalistic and religious living. It is also bondage. You're going from one set of chains to another set of chains. He is really putting irreligion and licentious living and legalistic living on the same playing field. 
He's saying you're going back to bondage. It's a different form of bondage, but nonetheless, it is bondage and it is weak and it is harmful. So let's break this down real quick. Irreligious living and religious living. What's the difference? Irreligious living is to look to creation to save us. What do I mean by that? It is to worship an object, a person, a feeling, or experience. This is what pagan worship or idol worship is. It is to worship the creation over the creator. For some, it is pleasure. And so in pagan worship, they would build a false god after some sort of pleasure. For some, they worship money. And so in the pagan world, they would form a false god of money. For some, it is fame. For some, it is an experience, a feeling. For some, it is reputation. Irreligious living is putting these things at the center of our life to find fulfillment and satisfaction. In our minds, this is what we generally consider as worldly living. This is what we refer to in the Christian church, right? Worldly, irreligious, licentious living. It is a form of bondage because those things that you are worshiping will in fact enslave you and you become bound to them. So now we're bound to pleasure. We're bound to money. We're bound by fame. We're bound by reputation. We're bound by a feeling or an experience. This is what irreligion or licentious living is. This was the history of the Galatians. This brought bondage. Well, in the same way, religious living also brings bondage. It's just a different set of shackles. Religious living isn't to look to creation to save us. Religious living is to look to our performance in order for God to save us. So at the center of a religious person's life, God is a part of their language and a part of their life, but God is not at the center of their life. In fact, they are at the center of their life. The religious person is at the center of their life and their performance to show off or to prove to God who they are. Warren Wearsby defines legalism or religious living like this. He says, legalism does not mean the setting of spiritual standards. It means worshiping these standards and thinking we are spiritual because we obey them. It also means judging other believers on the basis of these standards. That is legalistic living or religious living. See, at the center of a religious person's life is them and their performance. Generally, it is achievement or morality. God, look at all I've done for you. Look, I've read my Bible every single morning. Look how much I go to church. Look at how much I'm serving and what I'm doing. And they take what is a good thing and what is supposed to be an act of worship, but they put it at the center of their lives in order to impress God or work their way up to God. And Paul is saying that this type of living is no different than licentious living. It is bondage and it is the same principle of the weak and beggarly elements of the world. It is a principle that you need to save yourself. And so now those good acts have now actually become little saviors in which we are relying on for us to be in right standing for God. This is legalistic living or religious living. And Paul is putting it on the same exact playing field as licentious or immoral living. You see, grace says to the irreligious person, 
and echoing the words of Jesus, grace says, I am the bread of life. It says to the person that is looking for fulfillment and satisfaction in other things, Jesus says to them, I am the source of satisfaction and fulfillment. You don't need to look to the creation. You look to the creator. This is what grace says to the irreligious person. What grace says to the religious person in the words of Jesus is I am the way, the truth and the life. It's not by your way that you work up, work your way up to God. Jesus is the way in which you come to God. This is what grace says to them. Now, this is so important because we all have this tendency to receive God's grace, but then to turn from it and rely again in our right standing for God. To feel like we need to prove ourselves to God. By example, when God radically changed my life at 17 years old and I experienced the grace of God, I was changed. But the first, one of the first things I did was like, I got to quit surfing. And so instantly I go into this legalistic mindset that man, surfing has been like an idol in my life. And so I just got to quit it completely to prove to God, look God, I'm living for you now. And so for, for quite some time, I kind of stayed away from surfing in order to, to prove myself to God. Look, God, I'm serious about following you. Well, I'd gone from licentious living to grace and now I was into legalistic living. And I was critical of others that were enjoying their life because I'm like, why aren't they serious about God? But this is what legalism does. This is what religious living does. It takes what it is, what a good thing that is to be enjoyed by God and it demonizes it. And this is what I'd done when it comes to surfing. I had a disorder in my life and so I tried to get it out of my life rather than putting it in proper order of my life. Well, grace changes the licentious person and the legalistic person. Now they, the Galatians, had gone from licentious to legalistic. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says that they were dropping out of the school of grace and enrolling in the kindergarten of the law. They were dropping out of the school of grace and enrolling in the kindergarten of the law. They were actually going backwards God had done a great work in their lives, but now they're going backwards to relying on themselves once again. And this is so important because we all have that default. Grace is so out of this world that we, because of Jesus, we are already accepted and loved and forgiven, not on the basis of anything that we've done. That is so out of this world that often we forget it. We use the language, we praise God for his faithfulness, but often in the back of our mind, we think I really got to show God that I'm doing all right right now. I really got to prove to him. We go backwards into the weak and beggarly elements of this world. Grace is not our default. Legalistic living to prove ourselves to God is our default. It is always what we go back to. That is why we must be reminded of God's grace. And that's why the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. We must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. We constantly have to keep God's grace at the forefront of our minds. Otherwise, we drift back into either licentious living or legalistic living. 
So we must keep God's grace and the gospel, the good news, at the forefront of our minds. So he's pleading with them to return to grace. Lest he's afraid for them, lest he labored for them in vain. Let's continue. The second word to outline our time together is remember. Remember grace. Let's read verses 12 and on. It says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Here Paul is reminding them of where they came from and where they're going. In fact, we get a little inside scoop of what exactly happened when Paul the Apostle brought the gospel to the Galatians. We see that they received it in joy. We see that Paul became like them. And this is so key to understand because Paul enters into the Galatians world. In fact, we find out from um, commentaries and from church history that Paul had been at a time he was sick. In fact, he's writing about it right here, that he had a physical infirmity. Some believe that it was malaria. Others believe that it was an eye issue. Nonetheless, Paul was not planning on going to this region initially, but he takes a detour to recover from his illness. And while he is there, he gets embedded into their society. He's living with them. He's talking with them. He's eating with them. He's staying with them. He became like them and he shares the gospel with them. He's doing life alongside these people and they receive the gospel with joy and with zeal. So much so that they received him as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. They were fanatical by the message that Paul had brought. So much so that because of Paul's illness or his infirmity, they were willing to pluck out their eyes to give him a new set of eyes. Paul's saying, remember the zeal of where you came from. As he's playing with them to go back to grace, he's reminding them, remember where you came from. And what a word of application for us. In moments where we go back into licentious living or legalistic living, man, we must remember what God has done in our lives. You remember those moments where you received the gospel of grace, where you heard it for the first time and you tasted and saw that the Lord is good and he radically changed your life. This is what Paul's doing. He's getting very personal with them. He's reminding them where they had came from. And by a note of application for our lives when it comes to bringing the gospel to others, here when we read there in verse 12, when he says, I became like them, I became like you, this is what we refer to as incarnational ministry. What Paul is saying is, I became like you, I stayed with you, I ate with you, I talked with you, and then I brought the gospel of good news. Is this not a great picture of what Jesus has done to us? What Paul is saying to the Galatians is, I stepped into your world. I became like you in that way. Well, that is the model that Jesus has given us. Jesus has stepped into our world, quite literally, he left the riches of heaven for the rags of this world to become like us, to sympathize with us, to suffer alongside us. 
to bring the good news of his gospel that we may repent and turn to him. By application, when sharing the gospel, if you desire to see someone rescued from slavery or bondage and to receive God's grace, we must step into their world to hear them, to listen to them, to walk with them, and of course, to share the gospel with them. This is what Paul does, and they readily receive. He's reminding them of where they come from, but he's also reminding them where they should be going. He says, I became like you, so you become like me. How does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Remember where you're headed. Remember where you are to be going. You're to become more like Christ. As you become more like me, you are to become more like Christ. They had turned from this. They were going a different direction. And so Paul is reminding them where they come from and where they were to be going. They were to go and to become like Christ, not to perform, not to go to rituals or customs, but to go to the cross. For Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus calls us to a life of not self-seeking, but self-denial. But the Galatians had turned back to self, relying on self, looking to self to perform and impress God. So one, return to grace. Two, remember grace. Three, run from legalism. Run from legalism. Look to me, look with me to verse 17. Paul says, they zealously, speaking of the Judaizers, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always and not only when I am present with you. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have, have, I have doubts about you. Run from legalism. There in verse 17, Paul uses very... Strong language to refer to the Judaizers. He says that they were zealously courting them. The language there is that the Judaizers were really forcing themselves upon the Galatians in a way. They were bringing them away, forcing their beliefs upon them. It reminds me of the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Remember with me in Genesis 39... It'll be up on the screen in verse 11. We read in Genesis 39 that one day Joseph, he went into the house where he was working, Potiphar's house, to attend to his duties. And none of the household servants were inside. She, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. You see, legalism can be a lot like Potiphar's wife. Legalism seduces us. Legalism, in the words of Paul here in Galatians 4, zealously courts us. It likes to draw us aside and put itself on us. Legalism can be a lot like the seductress woman of Proverbs 7. 
In Proverbs 7, we read, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her and is as an ox goes to the slaughter. Legalism can be a lot like the Proverbs 7 woman, can be a lot like Potiphar's wife, in that legalism persuades us, not with pleasure, but with pride. Legalism triggers the flesh. Legalism says things like this. Legalism says, if you do this, you'll be more spiritual. Legalism says, if you follow this and these principles, God will really be impressed with you. Legalism says, do this, And you'll be a lot better than them. Legalism persuades us not with pleasure, but with pride. Legalism zealously courts us. The reason that the Galatians received the Judaizers was because they brought a message. Hey, do you want to be a little bit more spiritual? Do you want God to be really impressed with you? You got to follow these customs. You need to follow this ritual And then, man, God is going to be amazed by you. Legalism triggers our flesh. It persuades us with pride. And legalism always excludes us. Notice there in verse 17, these Judaizers, they zealously court them, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you. Legalism always pulls us aside quietly. It's those quiet thoughts of pride in our hearts. Tries to pull us aside and convince us, man, God would be really impressed if fill in the blank. You know, as a young pastor, and this really has not happened here at Calvary Vista, but in my early years of of being a young pastor um, at at another church, there would be people that would pull me aside and they would be like, Pastor Tyler, I can't believe we sang that song tonight. Do you know who wrote that song? Do you know what theology they hold? Do you know who they are? I can't believe, man, I can't believe the worship pastor would let us sing that song. Man, I really know they really got to stop doing that. Those people are dangerous. But it's interesting, those little comments, they would always pull me aside. They would never go directly to them with their concerns, but they wanted a listening ear for me to gratify their flesh to say, wow, I didn't know that. They said that? That worship leader, that worship artist did what? They wanted me to gratify their flesh that they would feel more spiritual. They would say things like, did you know that the pastor holds that theology? Man, you should really look into these people. Their theology is a lot better than that. I would know. They would want me to, to, they would zealously court me, bring me aside, exclude me so that I would gratify and give them a listening ear. This is what legalism does. Beware of the moments where you get pulled aside for those little conversations. That is legalism that is showing itself. This is what the Judaizers were doing to the Galatians and they were falling for it. Paul does not condemn zeal, but he says that zeal 
need to be in its proper place. He says, man, my children, if only I could come and talk to you. If I could change my tone of voice. If you could hear my voice. Paul's desire is that they would return to grace. That they would remember grace. That they would run from legalism. Just as Joseph run from Potiphar's wife. To run from legalism and to grow in grace. This is why he says there at the end of verse 20, I would like to be present with you, or sorry, in verse 19, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. What he's saying there is so funny because my wife, she's had two kids. We've got two little ones. And how, how many of you know there at the end of your third trimester, when it's time, you're ready to get that baby out. You're like, I don't want this thing to be cooking any longer. I want this little baby to get out of me. I want them to grow up. This is the idea that Paul has in mind for the Galatians. They've gone back into spiritual immaturity. They've gone back into the kindergarten of the law. And Paul's like, I have labor pains for you again. I want you to grow in grace. I want you to go back to grace. So return to grace, remember grace, run from legalism. And I promise this will be quick. It's a lot of text tonight, but realize grace is better. And so this is what he does. He shifts them to an old story. Here in verse 21, he goes back to the book of Genesis. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who is of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the a free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one for Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac, are children of promise. Everyone say promise. Promise. But as he who is born according to the flesh, speaking of Ishmael, everyone say flesh. Then persecuted him who is born according to the Spirit. Even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be the heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Everyone say free. Okay, really quick in closing tonight. Paul's whole thing is to realize that grace is better than the law. He says, if you want to be under the law, let me take you to the law. If you want to be under the Mosaic law, speaking of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, let me take you back to Genesis chapter 16. Let me take you back to a story about Father Abraham. Let me take you back to him. See, Abraham had a promise from God. He had a promise. He was called out of his place. He had a promise that he would have a son and that through this son, he would have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. But Abraham was old. His wife, Sarai, was old. Like I'm talking old, old, okay? They are past childbearing age. And Abraham's waiting. 
And he's waiting 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 for God to fulfill his promise. And man, things weren't working out. So he dips out to Egypt real quick. He goes out to Egypt. Things don't go well there. And there in Egypt, he picks up a slave woman. Her name is Hagar. Hagar joins the team. She goes on with Abraham. They go back into the wilderness. Now Sarai and Abraham, they're stressed out because they're like, man, God has not fulfilled his end of the bargain yet. We don't have a son. And he's looking at his wife and his wife, she's looking at herself and she's like, I'm getting old. And she's like, I got a bright idea. I've got Hagar here. She is my bond woman. She's my bond. She's my slave. I want you to go into her, have a child with her. And Abraham's like, all right. And so he goes and he has a child with Hagar. And Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. And 13 years later, now when they're reaching 9900 years old, Sarai... Way past childbearing age, she was barren. She now gives birth to the promised child who is Isaac. Paul's bringing this all up to contrast legalism and grace. In fact, let's put it up on the screen. I've got a little chart for you guys. Legalism and grace. Here, what he's doing is he's contrasting living according to the law to living according to grace. So Hagar, she is quite literally the bondwoman. She is literally a slave. And in the same way, legalism enslaves us. Legalism brings bondage. Hagar was literally a slave. In contrast, Sarah was Abraham's wife. Sarah was the free woman. Sarah represents, and through Isaac, represents freedom. So Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, and Ishmael is born according to the flesh. What this means is God gave a promise, and they're like, well, God's not fulfilling his in the bargain, so we need to fulfill our in the bargain. We need to help God out. And so Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar come up with this brilliant idea to work things out in their own flesh, in their own understanding. And it gives birth to Ishmael according to the flesh. Ishmael would go on to persecute Isaac and continues to do the same today. Quite literally, the descendants of Ishmael persecute the descendants of Isaac today. And in the same way, our flesh persecutes us. Our flesh reminds us of our wrongdoing, of our error, of man, God must be mad at you because of what you've done. God's going to strike you down with lightning because of what you've done. Our flesh persecutes us. And so Paul is contrasting the two. Hagar, who gives birth to Ishmael, born according to the flesh, to then Sarah, who's a free woman, who represents freedom. Paul says these things were written symbolically or allegorically. Isaac was born according to promise. God had given a promise and they'd acted out in the flesh to try to fulfill that promise. How beautiful is it that God's grace still overrides their failure and their mistake and still holds his end of the bargain. And we have Isaac, who is the son born according to the spirit, born according to promise. This is what it is to live according to God's grace. It's to rely on God's promises, not our own flesh. Now it continues in that this is that Hagar came from 
Egypt. Many believe that she was actually born in Mount Sinai, but he references there Mount Sinai, which is now the earthly Jerusalem. The whole point is that legalism or the Jewish law or the Jewish customs was all founded upon the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic law that came from Mount Sinai, the covenant that God made with Moses, which is now represented in the earthly Jerusalem because the earthly Jerusalem is the epicenter or the center of the Jewish faith. But he says that these things just bring bondage and death. And that's all the Mosaic law does. Shows you that you're not good enough, that you can't do it, that you have failed. And so legalism represents the earthly Jerusalem, which is really symbolic of bondage. But notice there that he says that the heavenly Jerusalem in verse 25, the heavenly Jerusalem is free. The heavenly Jerusalem is free. And what that means is the Jerusalem from above, that's what it means by heavenly Jerusalem, is free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. It's not based on what you are doing and performing and proving and showing yourself to God, but it is a free gift of God's grace. Jesus cried at the cross, it is finished. And so now we are all descendants of the heavenly Jerusalem. The promise of the Son who would forgive us, who has redeemed us. And so grace here is summarized in the contract, legalism and grace between Ishmael and Isaac. And notice this, Ishmael, if you remember the story, Ishmael is cast out. In fact, Paul says that. He says, we are, he says there in verse 30, nevertheless, what does scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be the heir with the son of the free woman. Ishmael born according to the flesh gets none of Abraham's inheritance. And when we try to live according to the flesh, we're not earning any of God's approval. We're not impressing God. In fact, it was the son of promise, it was Isaac who has complete inheritance. All of Abraham's inheritance goes to the son of promise. So too with us, because of God's grace, we've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have that complete inheritance in Christ. And so two ways to live your life. Is what Paul is saying here at the end of chapter 4. Legalistic living, which is relationship based on man's performance or the law. Or grace-filled living. True Christianity. Relationship based on God's promise. Faith. Question in closing. The questions that we're going to look in discussion groups tonight is which one are you living which way are you walking? How are you living? How are you relating to God? By your performance or by his promises? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your incredible grace that has saved us and that also sustains us. Father, I pray that we would be a people who live in relationship with you on the basis of faith, believing that you are who you say you are and believing that we are who you say you are. I pray that we would root our identity in you as adopted in as sons and daughters. And I pray, God, that we would take advantage, that we would take access to the full inheritance that we have in you. 
Father, I pray for any of those tonight that are struggling. Maybe they're confused. This is a deep passage. But really, maybe they're just struggling with the idea of trying to prove themselves to you. Lord, I pray you would identify those that that are basing decisions based on on their performance rather than based on believing in your promises. Father, I pray that you would free them from that bondage of them being at the center of their life. And Lord, I pray that you and that your promises and that your word and that your grace would be at the center of your life. Father, we thank you for who you are. And in Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.